the master percussionist pulled me aside and had to teach me how to breathe. He said, you've been exposed to some really powerful rhythms. He says, I'm sorry, I, I didn't even think about it. But those rhythms were so strong that it had my heart rate, my blood pressure up, but it, it was powerful in that. I thought, oh man, rhythm, tone, frequency, vibrations really are powerful. And that's part of the mysteries. Welcome to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is the podcast created to help you become a rock star of the recording studio. Hey, rock stars, it's your host, Lid Shaw. I created this show to introduce you to real world recording professionals to hear their stories and learn from their experiences so that you can take your records to the next level and be a rock star of the studio yourself. My guest today is Neil Capolino a multi-Grammy awarded producer and engineer who has called Nashville his home for more than 20 years. In 1992, he built and operated a commercial recording studio for several years and now maintains a private facility, the Dog House, which is his home base for his work. Neil is a member of Neris, AES, and Leadership Music 2016, and he also sits on the board of the Melodic Caring Project a nonprofit company that streams live music events to hospitalized children around the world. With a performance background in keyboards and a bachelor's of science in electrical engineering, Neil has built his career on empathy for both sides of the glass, helping guide platinum artists as well as emerging independent talent. His extensive credits include Alison Krauss and Union Station, Vince Gill, Joan Osborne, Avicii, the Gabe Dixon Band, Dolly Parton, and Brad Paisley. Please welcome Neil Capolino to Recording Studio Rockstars. Neil, my friend, are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock. Awesome, dude. <laughs> I'm ready. So can you introduce yourself more in your own words and tell us more about who you are and how you got here? Um, well, I guess just short history, brief bio. I came from Rochester, New York, left there to go to school in New England, like you said, electrical engineering degree at Worcester Polytech. And um, I worked throughout school in the industry as an engineer and decided I didn't want to uh, go into engineering. I was a lifelong musician and kind of, you know, looking back, I've always been a creative. But in the 80s, you know, electronics and electrical engineering, computers, it was on the forefront. So that was kind of where I thought I should go. Um, I also minored in jazz while I was at school. And while everyone was interviewing for jobs, you know, I was talking with my jazz instructor who would become kind of a mentor and confidant and said, you know, I don't know where to go. I'm not going out into the, the world of engineering. He said, well, why don't you try talking to my friend, Mike, who's the studio manager at Longview Farm. And I did. And that was my first job. So I cut my teeth as an engineer there. And they hired me to see if I could, you know, maybe fix an 1176 or something. Um, but it was a foot in the door. And, you know, that's what it takes is, wow. is just getting that first opportunity. So that's cool, man. I, I didn't know you were from up northeast too. Um, New England was quite a place to be in the '80s. For I mean, it still is, but you know, it was sort of like the original Silicon Valley alongside Silicon Valley, wasn't it? Yeah, even in terms of tech. Yeah, in terms of tech, you had New England Digital, and wasn't Lexicon from up there? And yep, Lexicon, and uh, you know, the conventional industries as well, Raytheon, and uh, things like that. But yeah, and. Just New England's a great place to be. It's proximity to everything, whether it's mountains or oceans and lots of music happening. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, M- MIT is right there in Boston. And I remember, um, I mean, I think a lot of great speaker designs and, and mic designs uh, are up there. I remember meeting David Blackmer up in um, near Nashua, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. That's right. I worked at the Bose factory for a little while. Right. I was going to mention Bose. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Longview Farms. That's super cool. Isn't that where Pat Metheny uh, made a lot of records? He made American Garage there. As far as I know, that's the only record he made there, but uh, the studio is no longer. They okay. closed just, just a little while ago. Tell us a little bit about that studio. What was, what was it like? Well, so Longview Farm was, uh, uh, I guess you could call it a, a residential studio. It was two different studios built on 30 acres in um, rural Massachusetts, North Brookfield, Massachusetts, which is uh, west of Worcester. So it's about two hours from Boston. Uh, beautiful horses and chickens and dogs. And, um, I lived there a good bit of the years that I worked there. Uh, they had two rooms, one of which was the farmhouse that had an MCI 600, either MCI tape machines or Otari two inch machines that were so popular in the eighties. And, uh, the barn, which became famous for recording the Rolling Stones tattoo you, they made the barn studio for the stones in 81, 82 or remade it. That was a great, great room. And it was a, you can imagine a, a, a real working barn, you know, like the horses below. And, but on the second level, they had built a, a stage that was about 60 feet wide by maybe 30 feet deep. And that became the performance area for the stones for recording. Of course, there was other rooms and isolation for other, other things as needed. But um, they built that sound stage for the Rolling Stones. And that became a real hallmark of, of Studio B in the barn at, at Longview. Were you there at that time or did you appear sort of right after that stuff? I came to Longview in 86. So uh, the Stones had long gone, but lots of great music there. Um, stuff, uh, Jay Giles, Stevie Wonder, um, yeah. a bunch of people parked there for, and, and that was still the, uh, that was still the kind of the modus operandi for making records is to camp out. At yep. that point. And that was kind of like the last great era of that where you, you had a cook. John was the cook and you'd wake to great meals and, you know, you'd break in the middle of the night for great meals and, you know, you'd work long, long hours and, and you'd wear it out. But it was really, uh, on another level, it was really, you were pretty well taken care of there. That's cool, man. You know, it's funny because I was not far away in 86. I was in Groton, Massachusetts, right down the street from you. Oh, Yeah. finishing up my high school. So I wasn't ready for recording yet, but I had picked up a guitar and learned three chords at that point. You had your sights set. (laughs) (laughs) Little did I know it. (laughs) Um, And so, and tell us more, who is John? Is he the owner of of, uh, Longview? No, uh, the owner was Gil Markle, uh, who's since passed. John was the cook and um, Jeff was the groundskeeper. Nibby was the night watchman. Zeke was a day watchman. Jesse Henderson, who was, I'm still in touch with, was the chief engineer when I got there. There was another, you know, Libby carried for the, cared for the horses. There was a whole staff there. Wow. So it was kind of like the Longview family. And I, you know, Bill Ryan, who's built still up in uh, the Boston area doing studio tech stuff. He did a lot for that studio, technically. That's so, cool. Yeah. It sort of paints this picture. I picture this all happening over in England on some, you know, manse somewhere. It, yeah, would be. That would be the, the, the New England version of it. Well, that's cool. All right. So um, you were at Longview. How, how long were you there for? Uh, it was about two years, 86 through 87. Then I, I moved to Boston. Nice. Two years with no sleep. And then you moved to Boston. Tell us uh, sort of your path from Boston to Nashville. Well, Boston was um, pretty cool and pretty wild at that point. Since Longview Farm, I have been 
pretty much nothing but a freelance independent engineer. And the same, that was the case in Boston. I worked at various studios, a lot at a place called Pyramid Sound in South, South End near the train tracks. That was a wild ride there. The owner was less than stable. And, but uh, I gained a lot of experience there and, you know, experience in many facets of the industry, whether it's, you know, audio or psychology or fighting for your money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there was, uh, there was a, a, a brief stint there where you're just kind of, you're threading it together. I did live sound. I played keyboards and bands. I worked at the studio and it's all about meeting people and, and kind of pollinating. So that was, uh, that was then. And at that, I guess I lived in Boston till 91, uh, decided to travel around the country for a while with, uh, a girlfriend at the time. So we packed up a van and actually went and spent uh, a few months in Seattle. And then we left from Seattle in a VW van and toured the country for a year. That was great. I was actually doing the same thing. I was backpacking around Europe in 91. So I'm, really? I'm, I'm seeing these parallel paths. <laughs> You're stalking me. Um, yeah, that's cool. I, I guess the wanderlust hits us all, you know, and some, that was a good time to do it. Just really cool. Cool to see the country take the time when you don't have as many you know, obligations and contracts in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, so when did you come to Nashville? Well, I first came through Nashville on that trip in 91. Then I came back to stay in, in early 92. Cool. Again, that's exactly when I moved to Nashville. I, <laughs> I came down here to go to MTSU at that time. So oh, uh, wow. I wonder if we crossed paths then and didn't even know it. But of course, you were way ahead of me. You had already been in studios and been working. I was just showing up to learn all this stuff for the first time. Yeah, but here we are. But here we are. Well, cool, man. Well, so now um, I like to always ask my guests to sort of launch us with an inspirational quote on the podcast. Do you have something you'd like to get us started with? <laughs> um, well, you know, there's, it's funny. I'll give you a couple. For a long time, I had a piece of console tape across my console in the studio that I built that said, be bold and mighty forces will come to your aid. I have that on the website and there's a there's some contention over the authorship of that quote, but there's a guy from Germany who saw that quote on my website and decided that he wanted to work with me. So he, he took it to heart. There's another one that my father always says, as you know, son, you go where you're looking. I think about that every day. And then the last one that might be apropos for our times is a, a good friend of mine uh, has a quote that he says, now would be a good time to wake up. Nice. I like all three of those. They're great. There you go. I like that, man. Be bold and mighty. I mean, that, I think that's a great, that is a great credo just for making music and mixing and, and, you know, playing a note on an instrument, singing a note. I remember my choir teacher when I was a kid growing up, she used to say they'd much rather hear us sing the wrong note loudly than ne never, you know, than always sing wimpy. That's right. That's right. Give it heart. Give it heart. It's, it's, uh, you got more rock and roll and, if you put something into it, for sure. Well, and who says, uh, oh, now I forget who it was, but uh, maybe it was Miles about somebody. He said, the note is only 20% of it. The rest is heart. Nice, man. I haven't heard that one yet. I like that. I remember there was another quote. It's not exactly the same thing. I think it was Dizzy or somebody who said, you know, it, it, whatever note I land on, uh, if, if it's the wrong note, I'm only a half step away from the right note. <laughs> yeah so maybe that's part of the same idea just land you know leap and land with conviction because if you're only a half step away you can always sort of straighten yourself out 
<laughs> I like it. Uh, how about sharing with us a, an important story about a, a failure for you? Something in your career, or maybe with your studio when you came to Nashville, where, or maybe even before that, where things kind of fell apart, but it turned out to be a, a real learning experience for you. Everybody has fails. There's a lot of fails. It's, you know, it's the best learning mechanism we have. But when I came here, I built a studio over in um, the big red building by, can't, by, by the cannery. And it yeah. was like a, a 2,000 square foot loft space. And it was very much the indie studio. And this is 94, 95, 96, all the way up to 2000, I think, is when I closed it. But part of the decision to close it was from one of those fails where I had, uh, I, you know, you're always trying to get the next level of clientele in there and talking it up and selling it. And so one day I did get one of those sessions and it happened to be a demo session for, oh, I can't remember the artist, but uh, I had never worked on the Nashville system of 10 o'clock downbeat. It just, it was unknown to me. Right. I didn't, I didn't assist for any engineers when I came here that were working in content, you know, mainstream music road type business. So I was just kind of an indie studio and they're like, Hey, this is cool. Vibey. Let's, let's come in and do it. And by 10 Oh one, I was, uh, being undressed for not being in record. And you know, this is, I'm wearing all the hats, you know, I'm making yeah. the coffee. I'm, I'm wiring up the session, setting up the mics at nine fifty nine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully not, but you know, you know, addressing any of their requests or changes, and no sooner did, you know, we did get going shortly after that, but, but shortly after we got going, a jackhammer started outside the window. That's because the train tracks are right back there too. I remember that. Yeah. You get some beastly trains going by the, the cannery building. You do. You do. And as much as we tried to get some well-timed train noises on recordings, it, it, it always evaded us. I don't know. You're not the first person to say that. Roger Mutno once told me, because you know, his studio is right behind train tracks, he said that somehow the train never made it onto a recording. Same here. In six years, it never did. It's like too musical. <laughs> Maybe there's some uh, there's some agreement there. But back to the jackhammer. The jackhammer, yeah. So the jackhammer starts. I mean, it was a complete meltdown. It was, you know, there was enough tension in in their crew, artist and demo producer or whatever, before they even walked in. I figured out afterwards. But it was, you know, the session crashed and burned. Of course, the artist needs somebody to blame it on. And, you know, that was that was going to be me in the studio. And so she went stomping out claiming that, you know, she'll never work here. And she's going to tell everybody what a piece of crap this place is. And, wow. you know, what can you do? I don't know. You know, I thought about that because as a studio owner, we have this responsibility to, I guess, if we want to take responsibility for it, we have the responsibility to, to prepare for the unexpected. And what do we do when the unexpected happens? Moments before you and I had this interview, which we're using Skype for, uh, the power just went, you know, just kaplunk and just shut off completely. And I was like, oh, no. So I went uh, storming out into the street to go see if anybody was working on the lines and you know, kind of let them know, hey, guys, could you turn my power back on? And it came <laughs> back on. But I mean, this is the kind of stuff that does keep you up at night sometimes when you're the studio owner is what happens if something comes along and it just destroys the session, you know? Yeah. yeah. What did you what did what was your takeaway from all that? Well, you know, just to finish the story, I did send um I sent uh, my wife, Lene, down. She says, do you want me to go talk to him? I said, probably better you than me at this point. So she went down, you know, 
and talked to the construction crew and says, hey, we have a business up here and this is disturbing our recording session. And I didn't know this at the time, but they were obligated to um, stop whatever activity they were doing if it was interfering with a commercial business. Interesting. And so we did get, uh, we did get things back online thanks to her. Um, but the session continued. It, it just blew, it just blew the vibe. It blew everything that was tenuous to begin with. And so you just let it go. I let it go. And you know, you're, you're building a business. You, you know, it's a gut punch at the time. You think, Oh gosh, this is, this is terrible. You know, mm. uh, there's so many people in that group of people that I wanted to impress. And when that goes bad, it's never a good, never a good feeling walking away from that. But well, sure. And, and you fully understand, I'm sure the value of investment or the level of investment that everybody else has even put into just being there for that day. You know, all the musicians, the artists, the schedules, everything. I mean, we appreciate that as studio owners. I know that sometimes, you know, when small things happen, I find the easy fix is, you know, offering to comp the extra time or an hour or whatever, or just, just reset the clock and that helps people out. But it is what a drag when it just completely derails the session and, and, you know, everybody's grumpy for the rest of the time. Yeah, I did. I felt bad for them. They got something done, um, but they didn't get done what they needed to. But in hindsight, and I think I recognize this after, um, that was part of the writing on the wall with that particular space. And that's what woke me up. And I said, you know, I'm not going to be able to take my business as far as I want it to go in this space. And from that point on, any more investment in that space to me was going to be wasted effort. Uh, and so that was part of the reason, a big part of the reason why I decided to close that that studio. Fascinating. And that was a lease agreement. It was a commercial studio. You were leasing a space, something like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was doing all the leasehold improvements out of out of my pocket. Actually, the the uh, owner was paying for materials because I was doing real improvements to the to the space. But it was all my labor, and we did a lot. We did a lot to that place, and we we had uh, a very amenable situation worked out. But it just became do, too difficult to, to actually run a, a business. It could be a great, and it was a great indie studio for people that didn't mind putting up with the chafe that was parking or noises or, you know, not great HVAC system or whatever. I, I pretty much knew I wanted to go further than, than that. A couple of things that's fascinating to me because I find that recording studios often have unparalleled requirements for operating we often need a place that is, uh, that needs to be quiet. You know, I mean, I know that when I studied or listened to some, some, uh, field recorders talk about going and capturing nature sounds in the world, they pointed out that the, the entire earth, it's om- nearly impossible to locate a place where you don't have background noise of man-made sounds. Mm-hmm. Even in, even in remote jungles, you have planes that fly overhead and things like that. And so, you know, you, you amplify that into uh, an urban environment and you realize just what kind of challenges a recording studio can be up against to try and create this perfectly isolated and quiet space. It's, qu- it's quite a lot. Yeah, it is. I guess we're, you know, we're looking for a bubble, uh, acoustically, uh, electrically, temperature, environment, that sort of thing. We need Obviously, instruments go nuts in, you know, changing temperature and humidity. So there's all that Mm. as well. Well, so um, if you don't mind, I want to stay on that topic for just a sec, because I think it's fascinating. And um, I'd love 
to learn from you. And I'm, I'm sure our listeners who I like to refer to as the rock stars on our show would love to learn more about this too. What are some of the typical challenges that people are faced with when they say, I want to start a commercial recording studio? Uh, well, first and foremost today is, I think, a contracting marketplace. I think you're looking at a landscape that has gone through a thorough disruption via technology and the democratization of what we do. So I would have to say for it, you know, the challenge is coming up with a viable business plan in this, in this marketplace now. Mm-hmm. You know, I look at what we do as engineers and producers as, you know, I feel like I'm here by waging the war of attrition. And I think that there's a definite solid middle class of people that are professionals in this industry that are disappearing, be they people or studios. Mm -hmm. So I would say to anybody who's, who wants to put a commercial recording studio together, run the numbers. Um, or unless, you know, you happen to be not exposed or susceptible to, um, financial realities of, of running a studio. I mean, if you can just do it and you have money and it's a hobby, great. I mean, I think the creativity is important. The music is wonderful. Um, but the, the recording studio business is a tough road to hoe right now. And I think it will be for some time. Yeah. Well, um, let's say hypothetically you're, you're in a place where you can just choose to create a, I mean, you know, you've worked in some home studios in the past, you described even uh, Longview Farms as kind of a home. I don't know how it was, whether it was commercial or it was sort of residential and just out in, in the middle of nowhere. But let, let's just say hypothetically in a place where somebody can choose, should I start a home studio or should I start a commercial studio? Because I know I want to do this for the next 10 years, 20 years, or build a career out of it. Um, what are some of the reasons that people are most likely to want to start a commercial studio? Well, I would think either, number one, they want, I would say, I used to go through this exercise with even equipment purchases. Um, A reason to start a studio is because you've got the work and your situation is dictating it. You just can't accommodate it, you know, in the home or in the way that you've been accommodating it. uh, And you find a limitation there. And so. Like you've uh, you've outgrown your home studio, for example. Yeah. For instance, you know, either, you know, now you have uh, trouble tracking at that studio, or you have acoustic um, challenges, um, whatever it is. Uh, maybe you're sharing the home with somebody. Uh, maybe you've gotten married, whatever. Yeah. And it just won't fly to have microphones and cords strewn through the kitchen. Sure. So I always use the kind of the exercise of the first time that I recognize the need for a different situation, you make a note of it. The second time you recognize that need, you start putting a plan in place. And the third time that you recognize that need should be the last time. You should have the next thing formulated. And so whether that's, I need a microphone, I need it once. Okay, well, needing it once isn't enough to go out and make the purchase. The next time I need it, okay, that validated the first time and I'm going to start putting funds aside. And the next time that you need it, you should either have it or you should say, that's the last time I'm going to do without that. Yeah, so like it. Um, that's our, that runs a little bit different from what I remember 
Daniel Lenoir saying, because my internship was at Woodland Studios and he was showing up to do Lou Harris's record, Wrecking Ball. And, and his assistant came down with a truckload of gear to load up the studio. And I remember hearing him say, uh, Daniel doesn't like to rent stuff. He'd rather just buy it if he's going to if he's going to use it. But maybe that was a different situation, too. Maybe those were different considerations for the budget. Well, yeah, I, mean, I think there's a different financial situation driving that. If you can afford to have it, have it. You know, if those are tools in the toolkit, that's great. When you're just starting a studio and making your way from a 57 to the next step up, you, know, you, have, to, you have to choose wisely. So those are, those are a little bit different. Yeah, sorry, you could almost say when you're climbing the ladder from a 57 to a 47. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. That's pretty much it. Well, cool, man. Um, yeah. I feel like I've been leaping in with some comments, but I appreciate you talking about the commercial studio stuff because we never really talk about that that much on the show. And I think it's such a great thing to understand. Um, well, let me let me spin it back on home studio for a sec. What are some of the things that can happen in home studios now that could never happen 20 years ago, 10 years ago? Everything, really. Everything can happen. Uh, tracking is a little bit harder. Uh, there was, uh, you know, the pendulum swings and then it comes back into the middle ground again. And not too long ago, the pendulum swung way to the side of home studio and home recording and home everything. Um, people came back towards the middle when they realized that maybe things weren't sounding quite as good as they wanted to. I know I got a lot of tracks to mix and and people say, I want it to sound like this. And I'd say, well, it doesn't sound like that right now. So, you know, you, mm -hmm. you start that process in the recording. And so I think there's, the pendulum has come back. But by and large, you know, myself included, people have rooms in the home where you can do uh, some of the heavy lifting of mixing, for instance, or all of the mixing, overdubs, certainly things like vocals, editing. guitars, editing, you know, editing is that extra step that was invented with, with home the studios, right? <laughs> with home studio and the advent of digital, you know, um, that well, became, well, probably home studios too, because all of a sudden people had a lot of time on their hands. True. Yeah. So yeah, the, the absence of that, you know, clock on the wall, ticking away the, the hourly charges at a commercial studio is liberating. And I, uh, I think that's great. So pretty much everything just depends on your particular home or your particular space. Well, so Neil, let me, let me jump back onto track here with us um, on the podcast and ask you to share with us a story of a real success moment for you in your career. I love going back and listening to some of the stuff I did years ago and hearing how unaware I was at some point or how unselfconscious the recordings were when I didn't, you know, actually when we were on tape, a lot of the two inch 16 recordings that I've done on tape when I go back and hear like when I just didn't know anything and we were really just capturing. I think those are just as valid success and moments for me that are validating as um, the stuff where you get awards for. I mean, all my work with Alison Krauss has been remarkably rewarding and that's on a daily basis yeah. because as demanding as it is, I learn so much and I learned so much from the creatives that I work with. Um, I love learning about the technical and I'm always trying to be better. But I, and I also think that, uh, you know, there's tons of people in this town, in this world that can do what I do technically and do it better. And they do, but there's, uh, there's something about just learning how creative people function 
and how they listen, what matters to them. I just like the musical moments where it's, uh, it just kind of lifts off. And I, I find that mostly in working with people that doesn't happen in an editing situation <laughs> that, that happens, you know, with, with people on instruments. Um, I just did a great record for a guy named Jeff White. It's a bluegrass record and we did it all in Vince Gill's uh, home studio. There you go. And he's got quite a nice home studio, as you would imagine. But the, the musicianship, the level of musicianship, and this was Jerry Douglas and Barry Bales and uh, Ronnie McCurry and Dan Tominsky and Becca Bramlett sang some and just Vince played a bunch. And it was just through the roof, the level of inspired playing. It's just, it can sound hokey, but that those are the times when I feel like it's it's a success. I'm I'm glad to be there. And the other part of it is just having a balanced life. Somebody, I know this isn't really to your question, but I, I love balanced life. Balanced life has to be part of it because you know this this is not the only thing in the world that's happening. Um, and music is important, but at the same time, you know, my you have other you have to take care of yourself. And so if I can and your people, your family, kids, whatever, if I can do that, if I can provide, and if I can be healthy and present for all the other aspects of life, then it's working. Um, but as you know, you can get all the accolades and awards, and if your life is a mess, it's hard to enjoy it. Absolutely. I mean, I know you're a parent and I'm a parent as well. I always say that my daughter is the best record I ever made. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I love making music and I love being particularly like you described being with other people. I, I've done this enough now to realize that um, while I do really enjoy some of my alone time in the studio, um, it's peaceful. The thing that really motivates me to want to make records is being able to spend a day with people that I really like all creating. Yeah. It's a great feeling. It feels like a, a good reason to be alive and a good reason to do what I do. Um, but the balance of that too, is that I know that I, I hit a threshold. I mean, I adopted the 10 to six schedule years ago, um, as part of, you know, having a family and just sort of finding, needing to find balance in my life and my schedule. And, and I love it. You know, when six o'clock rolls around, I find that it's great for us to wrap up the day and and I love to go for a run or go to the gym or go get some exercise, take a break, work on other stuff. And then the next day I'm just ready to rock again. I'm much more productive if I work a series of eight hour days than if I try to compact them all into one. Now that said, it's also nice, you know, the the flip side of that balance is every once in a while, sure, I love to burn the the midnight oil too. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's hard to it's hard to put a clock on creativity, as you know. I think as a general rule, that's a, that's a very healthy thing to do. And that's actually one of the challenges, you know, of having a home studio. If you do any work at home, you know, it's kind of always there looming. And it really takes some discipline to install those boundaries and be, be away from it, even though it's right in the other room. Yeah. Especially living in, you know, 2016 with a phone staring at you and beeping emails at you and messages all day. I mean, we're computers and our music becomes so uh, intricately tied together with the computer that it's just always calling you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, right on, man. So um, how about telling us some of the stuff? Well, actually, before we move on, you mentioned doing the record with Alison Krauss and I'd love to just geek out on that for a sec. I've worked with Victor and he's just such a fantastic and fantastically creative guy. 
I know that Allison and Victor Krauss both they you know come from a very musical family. What was it like working with Allison? Can can we talk about um, how you recorded some of that stuff? Some of the you know let's geek out some of the mic choices, the methods for recording that kind of talent. Well, um, you know, I, I have to give props to Mike Shipley, who is no longer with us, because Mike was the primary recordist on that and mixed Paper Airplane, which is what we, you know, got awards for. But I spent a long time with that record with them, almost two years. And that was predominantly Allison and I in the studio doing instruments and vocals. You know, so they tracked as a band. You know, and then and a lot of that is captured live, but especially with that album being a little bit more conceptual than previous records, there was more to do with instruments and a lot to do with vocals. And so I've been lucky to to be working with Al. I've worked with Al since in some capacity since maybe 2002, 2000. And so we were pretty much camped out. Um, either we started out at Blackbird uh, and then moved over here to the doghouse for a while doing doing instruments and vocals and i can tell you with if you want to geek out on tech stuff you know her signal path at that point which it's changed now was a sony c800g microphone mm-hmm. and um i was going through uh, a neve preamp into a cl1b that changed for some of the background vocals depending on who and what the song was uh guitars uh, i'm pretty much using nickel diaphragm KM54s or KM56s just recently started using SE Electronics RN17s, which are transformered um, small diaphragm condensers that work great on stringed instruments. Now, would you call these, would you describe these as kind of very flat measurement microphones? Um, or would you describe these as mics that have more character and more of an EQ curve going on? Well, it's not the 84, it's the KM54 and then the, the KM56. 56 is a multi-patterned version of that. And those are small diaphragm tube microphones. Okay, okay. Actually, maybe I have used the 54. Uh-huh, yeah, the Neumann. And those are, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I couldn't dict, I couldn't tell you, dictate the, the EQ curve or what it's like. If, so yeah, it's got a slight rise at 6K. It, uh, I, I do think of that mic as having attitude, though. Yeah, it's, it has a personality and it's and something that is uh, very complementary to stringed instruments. And the, the, the challenge there is balancing mid-range, and especially in bluegrass with so many mid-range instruments and vocals being in the mid-range. and It's all kind of mid-range management. So if you find a microphone that uh, is friendly to the mid-range without getting crass or harsh, uh, so those microphones and then the RN17s are, gosh, a really affordable version. You can get a great stereo pair. And then uh, let's see, what else do we do? Dobro. Gosh, we had a number of different things on Dobro, M49, sometimes a Sheps. Um, I have to pull back. This is 2010. Well, so so uh, M49, I'm thinking, I'm thinking now large diaphragm, right? Yeah, that's a uh, large diaphragm tube. And is that typical that maybe a Dobro has, you need a little more body? You need to address the body more with a larger diaphragm? Yeah, you know, obviously it depends on proximity, but there's, you know, the sound hole on a Dobro projects a lot of the bottom end and then the extra resonator you get a lot of the mid-range tone so it's usually two mics on a dobro and you can balance bottom and top okay so sorry say again where would you put the two mics on a dobro so you put one um on the lower side of the resonator or this is what i do anyways pointing at the resonator where you're getting a lot of the honk from mm-hmm. the dobro 
And then the other one you would put over the sound hole, the round sound hole, you know, just above that, some distance away, maybe a foot or more uh, away from that. Uh, and that, like an acoustic guitar, you know, the low end, that 200 that comes out of an acoustic guitar, there's a low end that comes out of that sound hole for the dobro too. Um, so you can balance that mid-range honk of the resonator with the body and the, and the bottom end. Mm-hmm. coming out of the sound hole. And would you sometimes pan those out and make it a, a, sort of a wider stereo or would you tend to pan them on top of each other? Uh, definitely. You know, if you have your phase coherence uh, and, and a lot of that is what the distance is from each of those microphones to where uh, the pick is meeting the string. And of course that changes. But in general, if you have a good phase coherence, then you, that'll collapse to mono better and you mm-hmm. can spread it out and have it take up more of the stereo picture. It just depends on what's going on in the song and how you need to localize the instrument. Interesting. Do you ever get tricky with um, acoustic instruments like this using some of these modern phase plugins to try and phase align multiple mics on a, on a dobro or an acoustic or, or any other instrument? Uh, yeah, sure. I've tried. Uh, I've tried that. And, you know, the funny thing that I've found is when you look at it on the screen and try and do it visually, it doesn't correlate to what sounds best. And so, you know, like with a bass DI and a bass microphone, there's always going to be a slight offset in the time where the bass DI is ahead. Um, That can work, but by and large, I try not to look at it um, because it doesn't always correspond to what sounds the best. Mm -hmm. And sometimes a little bit of phase cancellation between two mics or something actually can uh, carve out a little bit of boxiness. Oh, that, no, wait a minute. No, that's not true, man. That never worked for a Fender Stratocaster. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm so I'm joking. So Rockstar is that, uh, the, what I'm referring to, of course, is that you've got multiple single coil pickups. And one of the tricks of many electric guitars is putting those coils out of phase with each other, where you get that kind of hollowed out thin strat sound. That's right. That's right. So the, the, the analogy to that would be the microphone slightly out of phase a little bit. Um, not well, so, hundred, not in hundred and eighty degrees, obviously, but 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 time alignment mm-hmm. was so um, interesting because a lot of acoustic instruments do often have pickups in them, and I, when I'm doing the Bonnaroo Haybale Studio, for example, I always say yes to a pickup from the instruments out there, just so that I've got that and I've got the mic, and if the mic is picking up too much of everything else in the space, I'll favor the pickup a little bit and get a little more uh, definition. But what are some of your favorite ways to time align the pickup to the mics with instruments? So, you know, there's a, I have a lot of the the UA plugins and they have one of those uh, little labs uh, phase adjust IBP, I think it's called. And uh, I'll use that. Sometimes I'll just shift the track on the Pro Tools edit window and see where it kind of clicks into a more solid image. And of course I do, you know, I say don't look at it, but of course you look at it and see if I'll pick a transient and say, you know, what is, how far am I off? I mean, I can help it by getting it in the ballpark visually, but then ultimately you just have to listen to it. So yeah, those things, just turn the knob and see, because it'll change according to your, you know, the frequency that you're listening to as well. So if there's a little bit of smear, that's where I hear it is in the top end where it smears or it's not quite focused. You know, if there's a little bit of bottom end that's missing a lot of times you can compensate for that with eq but it's it's kind of the integrity of the the imaging which is the articulation and if that's kind of smeared those those are the things that make us do uh other things like add top end eq which might not be the solution so maybe it's just you know pulling one mic down and saying oh okay uh that's a lot more solid 
articulation or image than with the other two microphones in. And maybe it's just adjusting the levels and not having them all equal level, just finding where the basis of your tone is with one mic and then have the others uh, more in support. That's cool, man. I've never heard anybody describe the importance of phase as being all about that articulation before. In fact, I would have expected it to be a description of the opposite end, which was just like, you're just trying to get the low end in focus. And it's probably because mostly I'm phase aligning drums or bass guitar or something like that. A reminder, rock stars, you have to carefully adjust the levels of the two things you're phase aligning to, because if one's too loud or too soft, it really masks the other and it can fool you into not thinking you're not hearing it. True, true. All right, well, great tips on recording that stuff. I appreciate that. I guess what I wanted to ask about Allison's voice, um, for those of us who are familiar with her records, would you describe it as as smooth sounding as we're used to hearing it in recordings? Does she just have a... I mean, she's got this laser beam angelic tone to her voice. Yes. Uh, you know, like any voice, she has to be in the right place with her voice in order for her to commit it to tape. But I will say this, you know, usually we're focused on the last very few percentages of like what is clear, what is good enough. So for most people, like you said, her voice is pure and angelic and wonderful, but then it's always a little bit different when you get into the studio mm-hmm. and you're listening to playback and, you know, the things that she's listening for in terms of her vocal tone is is it clear and is it smooth is the top end open you know physically is is the voice in good shape and that has to do with a lot of things are you tired are you well rested are you dry is it you know what's going on emotionally what you know all those things play in how does your voice sound so she is unyielding you know in terms of getting that last bit five or two percent to the point where her voice is, she thinks the best it can be for, for recording. And that's, yeah, it is. And then she's, you know, I wish more people would be aware of their instrument that way and wait for it. I mean, she has the luxury. It's not always luxury. It's sometimes very inconvenient and difficult for her to say, no, not today, but she does because I think she respects the importance of it. And it's not, you know, she's not a diva about it. She, she just cares about you know, music and, and giving the best that she can. So now let's talk about your experience because as the engineer or producer on a session like that, when do you feel, or do you experience the same thing that I experience and that other people do where sometimes you're just feeling like, I'm just a little tired and I'm not so sure what I think about this, or this sounds pretty great. How do you manage some of that where you, you know, you try and really hold on to your perspective and, and feel confident about the accuracy of what you're suggesting. Do you ever suggest that the vocals are sounding right or wrong, or do you just sort of wait for the artist to suggest that themselves? Well, man, that's a great question. Yeah, you, you, I definitely do sometimes question the accuracy or veracity or what I'm being asked. Sometimes you're being asked for one thing and it's not, you know, there's a, there's a kind of, sometimes somebody's just looking for encouragement. So it might be, does this suck? Does it sound any good? You know, and your answer is you kind of have to get, that's where the relationship comes into play. But yes, I do. I, I try as much as possible to be really on my game. I have to have a lyric sheet in front of me. The technical details have to be taken care of so I can use my right brain. Uh, I can't look at the music. I can't look at the screen. And that's why the lyric sheet is so important because it gives me something else 
to look at, I can make notes on the sheet. Um, and another thing that's important is if somebody wants to come in and listen after having done four or five passes, try and play the right pass back, you know, the best take that you think they did, or play a section where you think that they really were on. Um, that would be flattering to them because what you're trying to do is is uh, demonstrate the yes and not as much say the the no. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, it seems like seems kind of obvious, but it does take extra effort. I mean, you have to be taking notes. You know, you have to have a lyric sheet and you have to have written down which was the best section of which take so that you know exactly which one. And I assume you have somebody sitting next to you who's operating Pro Tools at that point, so you have to be able to tell them which one to play no, back. not with Allison. She doesn't want anybody else in there. Oh, okay, cool. Talk about that. Talk about the importance of um, the the vibe in the control room when people are singing and when the artists are playing. Well, with her, it's either just me and producer or just me, and that's the way she prefers it. And, and she prefers to sing in, in visible, visual sight because I think it's important for her to be singing for somebody. She doesn't want to sing into a baffle or a, you know, a wall. She wants to be singing for people. And I think that's interesting. And I think also, you, you know, a vocalist just needs the liberty to have their, to go through their process, whatever it is. You don't have to worry, you don't want to worry about, am I showing somebody my ass in the wrong way? And, you know, that just puts you in the wrong self-conscious mode yeah. when, you, when you have to kind of get out of that mode. You got any good tips for kicking people out of the control room? Yeah. I mean, just, <laughs> you get, know. Get the fuck out. <laughs> you there. Uh, sometimes I, I have had to excuse my assistants and, and just, I said, look, you just got to be a little bit thick skinned about this. This is this artist. They don't prefer anyone else. It's not personal. I'll have, I'll come, I'll call you when we're done or come back tomorrow or whatever. And, you know, one time I did have to excuse the producer. I was asked to excuse the producer. Wow. <laughs> and so you just, you know, it's a, I think I just said, you know, I think this would go faster and easier. I forget what I said. If my uh, intern it, takes you out to lunch right now. <laughs> this is a, you know, this might be a, like, you know, a real idiosyncrasy, but I think they're having some trouble getting comfortable because, you know, they want to impress you, and I think it's important that they don't need to impress you right now. It's that, that sort of thing. And yeah. just try and think of a, a straightforward but nice way to say it <laughs> other well, than... Well, great, man. Great. I, I appreciate it. I like hearing stories like that. It's good yeah. stuff. Yeah. All right, cool. Well, so now, uh, Neil, let me jump forward here. Uh, uh, how are you doing on time? Are you good? I'm, a, yeah, I'm good, yeah. Okay, great. Uh, fellas, let's remember to edit that little comment out. Um, so, Neil, tell us more about the Melodic Caring Project. I think that sounded pretty fascinating. Would you like to talk about that at all? Oh, sure. Uh, Levi Ware uh, up in Seattle and his wife, Stephanie. Levi uh, was a client and then a friend. And then uh, he's an artist and uh, just kind of finding his way in music. And, and one day happened to be asked to perform for a young girl who was in, uh, in the hospital with cancer. And he did so via Skype session on his laptop. And I think it affected him profoundly. And it was a cathartic moment for him. He's like, this is, this is what music is for me in my life. And they formed the company and asked if I would be an advisor or a board member for them. So of course I said, yes, it's been a slow, tough go for them. Nonprofits have a hard time obviously raising money and getting awareness, but they're doing great work. Uh, and the format 
for them is tying into uh, touring artists' uh, live venues. Like they take a two mix off the board. They have a, a really well done three camera produced shoot. Um, the artists agree to address the children that are um, joining the live stream feed. They also coincidentally call their their kids rock stars because they are the real <laughs> rock stars of the show. Yeah. And so the artists uh, know to address these children by name in whatever state or country they happen to be in. And they designate or de dedicate a portion of the show to them. And I think even as far as uh, one artist brought the cameras backstage into the green room and just kind of brought the kids out of the doldrums of their hospital room and the, the, the physical challenges that they have into this virtual world of a concert that's being um, you know personalized for them. And it goes so far, not only just the healing element of music, but the the idea that they, this is something that they get to look forward to for a few weeks and really, really emotional stories from both the children and their parents about what these concerts do for them, give them hope and strength and more determination to get through their chemotherapy or surgeries or what have you. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's just one of the ways to give back. I, I applaud Levi and Stephanie for what they do because it's, it's not easy, but it's very gratifying. That's beautiful and powerful, and what a great reason to make music. Absolutely. The best reason. Well, very cool. Well, um, let's see. I think we're going to take a break here in a moment and come back for the jam session. But before we do, let me let me throw a few more geeky questions at you, too. Okay. And, uh, and talk about stuff that you might want to talk about. Um, I've got a few here. I would I would ask you about drums, vocals, or guitars. I feel like we've talked about vocals and, and guitars a little bit. Would you like to talk about some secrets for uh, mixing great drum sounds? Well, let's start with mixing. Um, maybe we'll go to recording after that. But you have had the experience of receiving tracks that were not quite all that, um, and you really had to pull some tricks out to try and excite the drums a little more. Can you talk about that ex that and give us some good tips? Sure, sure. Yeah, when I, uh, you know, the first thing I do is just pull up the faders and listen and start throwing. I throw a trim plug in on every channel of the drums and start messing with phase. You know, we talked about phase. So this is 180 degree phase flip on any of the instruments or any of the drums. And, and, and see, rock stars, rock, if you're not familiar with phase yet, that's the circle with a line through it. Just click that button and see how your drums sound from mic to mic. Yep. There you go. And what I do is I tend to check, you know, first kick against overheads snare top and or bottom against overheads, toms against overheads. And sometimes I find that, you know, if I'm flipping all those things, maybe I'll just go ahead and flip the overheads and everything else comes into, into focus, you know, making sure that, you know, the floor tom is something that people sometimes have to dig out the low end and get it real present. And sometimes that's a phase thing. But then with songs, or actually with drums, as with songs, I try and find the place where those faders live so that the, the drum kit is a balanced full picture. Mm -hmm. um, more often than not, I do drummer's perspective on, uh, on the left, right orientation. I do that too. Why do you think that is? I, I, I think it's something like vicarious. <laughs> yeah. Did we, did you play drums a little bit in your life too? A lot, a lot. I, I think that's what it is. I think if, if we've played drums at all, we just like the idea of a drum kit in front of us. I do. I do. Yeah. So then, yeah, mixing, for me, mixing is, you know, mixing drums is something that's very song dependent. 
But, you know, if it's just like a straight ahead rock thing and you want to get them really smacking, then it's usually um, individual channels treated with EQ and some compression, maybe modestly, depending on how they were recorded, obviously. And then pretty much there's always a parallel channel of compression. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do that through a pre-fade send on each of the individual tracks. What I'll do is I'll find that balance with the individual tracks, with the main faders, bust to a stereo drum sub, and then I'll assign a pre-fade send to a compression track. Uh, one of my favorites is the 33609. Um, oh, it's a, yeah. It's a great uh, drum compressor. Now, do we have a plug-in for that as well? Uh, yeah, UA makes a great one. And um, I think Empirical Labs is just coming out with something called the Arouser, which is the distressor plugin. Yeah, I think I saw that at Summer Nam just last week. Yep, yep. Um, so that'll be that'll be a great one too. And then um, there's a command. I think it's Command Shift H, which is copy to send, uh, which, will, which will copy your fader levels and pans, and I think any of a number of five parameters uh, from your main fader and pan it'll copy those settings to the send in in pro tools maybe and, maybe pro tools hd but yeah it's pro a great, tools great hd way. that's right you're right that's only hd so that will uh send the individual or discrete instruments to uh what i call the spank track or the compression the <laughs> parallel compression and then it's um, some of them i'm mute like i don't want to maybe i don't want to send the overheads to parallel compression or it's a matter of adjusting the recipe you know, how much parallel compression versus, you know, the original track and how, you know, then obviously you have a stereo sub of the original drums and then you have a stereo sub of the spank and then you're adjusting those two stereo faders to taste. Something that's cool about the arouser and a lot of plugins now is that they have a mix knob. So you can do parallel compression without setting up a pre-fade send. You can just put your compressor right on the stereo sub, dial in the mix so one thing to point out, Rockstars, is the difference between having two different faders and using the blend knob is if you use the blend knob, you can blend between uncompressed and compressed, but only the exact same balance of drum faders. Whereas if you set up a separate fader, like you said, Neil, you can send, you know, you could send less of the overheads and cymbal mics to that stereo compression if you wanted to. Yeah, that's a great point. Great point. And that can be helpful sometimes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. quick question for you, Spank. The only other person I know that I first heard that term was Tom Lord Algae down working with him in Miami. And I know he's also a New Englander because he was up there in Blue Jay around the same time you were. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that was, you think that was Spank was maybe a New England term that was getting thrown around <laughs> and kind of carried its way to Miami <laughs> and Nashville? Yeah. I mean, I'd like to say he got it from me, but I doubt it. <laughs> 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 I think it just has the right attitude. I think I'm going to write a book one day called The Origin of Spank, and I'm going to like do this, you know, be careful. A- etymological study to find out where it came from. Yeah, yeah be careful. <laughs> All right, Groovy. Um, how about um, Stereo Mix Bus? Anything you'd like to talk about? Some some stuff that you find often to be helpful as far as what you do about the stereo bus? Yeah, I like to pick compressors based on their their character for the stereo mix bus, you know, so... Uh, if it's something that's a little bit more mellow and toned down, like an acoustic or bluegrass thing, I love the um, the Manly Very Mew. That has a, a, a tone, a color. It tends to be a little more clear. Sometimes it could add, you know, depending on your settings, it, it, it'll have a little bit of a lift in the top end, actually. 
the 33609, the SSL G384, those are great uh, rock or just, you know, uh, a little tougher sounding compression. And are these all outboard compressors or do we have plug-in equivalents for most of these? Well, I've used both. Uh, and now I'm doing so much in the box that I'm using the plug-in equivalents. Cool. So it's, it's yeah, it's, it's uh, I think because I've used all of those hardware units prior to there ever being plugins available, I feel like I, I, I know what to reach for, for that character or color or tone that I want. You know, one of the benefits, or, or let me back up, one of the classic dialogues is plug-in versus hardware, plug-in versus hardware, plug-in versus hardware, right? And that's sort of like an old discussion. And the conclusion seems to be plug-in because it's convenient for all of us to work. But one of the things that I don't think we talk about much, but is a real outcome and benefit of it, and it's demonstrated right here, is the fact that in the world of plugins and that same plugin being available to somebody all the way across the world in you know, Southeast Asia or something like that who might be listening to this podcast, um, I think it's very cool that, that's, that we can use a tool here, talk about it, and somebody can have that tool available to them somewhere else. Whereas you know, a, hard, a Neve 33609, an original one, wouldn't have been available to most of the people listening. True, true. Yeah, it's one of the neat things of our industry now with, with technology. And, you know, the whole hardware versus software, you know, I was just up at Sweetwater Gear Fest, and one of the demonstrations that we did was I brought an 1176 and a Distressor, and what else did we have? We had a couple of maybe CL1B that we compared, and I'd set these sessions up where I had, the, you know, gains were equivalent and settings were matched to demonstrate the difference between software and hardware. And, you know, especially in that setting, you'd be hard-pressed to pick one over the other. I think what where that argument becomes more appropriate is not necessarily on a one-channel basis. I think where it becomes more determining is over the course of over the the scope of many channels, you know, and so you're doing multiple tracks of math in the digital domain versus multiple tracks of math in the analog domain. But there are realities to our our industry and our workflow now that we have to accommodate. And I think we're beyond the point of saying this is a compromise. I think if you're if you're skilled and you know what you want out of the the tracks and the tones and and uh, you can get the desired results. Well, I think about the situations, the real world situations where I'm choosing a compressor, for example, or I'm choosing something in the studio, and often the minutia of questions like should I use a plugin? Should I use the outboard gear? Should I you know should I A B compare things? They're so tiny compared to the musical decisions I'm making when I'm in that moment and mixing and trying to be creative, that that's where that stuff ends up not mattering so much, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You definitely don't want to agonize over that to the point where you miss it. <laughs> you, you miss the performance. Let, let me just ask you this one question before we take a break and come back for the jam session. Tell us what is one of your favorite parts about making records? Well, let's see. I mean, in the end, it's it's uh, feeling like you're doing something that that number one, it's fun. People are fun. The communion is fun. I think it's the the idea that you relate to somebody through this other language, you know, and that you can have these moments where uh, you both or you all have agreement on something visceral. It just kind of like it's the mystery of music. And I think I have a, an equal amount of fun as a, as a patron as I do 
a creator, you know, mm-hmm. going, going to a show and just being floored by what, what a good show or a good song or a good performance or a good solo can do. So, so to me, it's, it's kind of, there's still mystery. There's still things that are unexplained in life. And part of that is the effect of music. And that thing where you can be sitting in a room with a bunch of people and all be in agreement on what's good or bad. And what's that based on? It's based on this intangible thing. It's based on a feeling. And, you know, I guess it runs the gamut of emotions. It could be f- fun. It could be sad. It could be exciting. It could be, it could be jacked. And I just remember being involved in, in a mix of an African drum piece that was like eight minutes long. And I couldn't believe after three days of working on this, I thought I was going to have a heart attack after three days. And, and the, the drummer, the, the master percussionist pulled me aside and had to teach me how to breathe. He said, you've been exposed to some really powerful rhythms. He says, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I didn't even think about it, but those rhythms were so strong that it had my heart rate, and my blood pressure up. And it was a real good, I mean, it was a weird experience, but it, it was powerful in that I thought, oh man, music really, rhythm, tone, frequency, vibrations really are powerful in this world. And, and that's part of the mystery. So that's to me what, what gets me jacked about making music. That's wild, man. What a great story. I love hearing that. I was going to ask you if you had had the experience of making music across languages with people in, you know, from other countries. And clearly you have. Uh, and it also reminds me, one, one of my previous guests is Ian Brennan, and he talked about the power of music and, and some of the meso- methods of teaching where a master um, percussionist would uh, sometimes literally beat the rhythm into somebody's back for days at a time until it becomes ingrained in your, in your body. And that sounds like what you just described. Yeah, very much so. Uh, this percussionist, before he even, when he was studying in Africa, he said all they did was learn to breathe for weeks before they even touched the drum. Wow. Uh, and then here I was being exposed to this powerful mother rhythm, and it got inside me. That's cool, man. That's cool. Well, what a great place to to take a break, and we'll come back here in a minute for the jam session. Rockstars, before I go, just a reminder, as I always like to do, you'll find the show notes to everything we're talking about on the website and the blog post at rsrockstars.com or recordingstudiorockstars.com, and then just use the magnifying glass and search for Neil Capolino, C A. P-P-E-L-L-I-N-O. Two P's, two L's, right? That's right. All right, good deal. I wanted to make sure I got that right. (laughs) Thanks. Um, And uh, also, if you're listening on your phone, you can just click on the the iTunes podcast app. If if you're on iTunes, for example, and it'll pull up, you'll see the show notes right there. So you can just, with your finger, click through on the link and it'll take you right to the show notes. Um, And we'll have links to stuff we're talking about, links to Neil's records and anything else Neil would like us to link to. But meanwhile, we'll take a break and we'll come back in a moment for the jam session. Hey everybody, it's Lid Shaw, and I want to thank you so much for listening to this episode of Recording Studio Rockstars. I really appreciate you, and I really appreciate your time. And as a way of saying thank you, I've created a special mix tutorial just for you, Rockstars, totally free, called the Mix Master Bundle. With it, you get over two hours of detailed videos watching over my shoulder as I mix a song in my studio. Plus, I give you the free ebook that explains how I recorded the tracks 
and you get downloadable multi-tracks so that you can practice your mixes, including the Pro Tools session file, using nothing but stock plugins in Pro Tools, all of which you would find in any other DAW, whether you're on Logic or Studio One or Reaper. Maybe you're struggling with trying to improve your mix technique, or maybe you just simply don't have access to multi-track files or can't record a full drum set in your studio. I wanted to give you a chance to create your own mixes from full drum kit, bass, and guitars recorded in my studio. The song is called American Winter, and it's off my instrumental record, Skadoosh, and it's all available for you totally free right now. All you need to do to get it is text Mix Master Bundle to 33444, and I'll send it directly to your email. Again, that's Mix Master Bundle with no space to 33444, or you can go directly to MixMasterBundle.com Enter your email, and I'll send all the files directly to you. Thanks so much, Rockstars. We'll see you guys in the jam session. Cheers. Welcome back to Recording Studio Rockstars. I'm here with my guest, Neil Capolino, and we are about to jump into the jam session. Neil, are you ready to jam? I'm ready to jam. Awesome, dude. When you were starting out in recording, what was one of the things that was holding you back from moving forward as quickly as you might have liked? Probably having a mentor. Um, I, I think I skipped that step. I think a lot of my learning came uh, kind of hard won, learned my own lessons through my own mistakes sort of thing, whereas the traditional path, especially in this town, is to work at a studio or for an engineer and get as an assistant or an intern. And I did none of that. I just came to town and I started building a studio and um, – I probably would have learned a lot quicker if I had had a mentor or somebody to learn from. I did eventually learn from folks, but it was uh, it was a little bit later on. That's good advice. So find somebody that you can learn from when you're starting out so you can kind of accelerate that process. Yeah, and it depends on your trajectory or where, what your goals are as, as an engineer. I mean, um, I wanted to be in the commercial marketplace. Some people just want to be able to record their own music or be a hobbyist. But if you do want to be in the marketplace, I... I kind of miss the the apprentice journeyman phases of of things of vocations. You know, I think that's real important. Well, I know you've had experience teaching and doing some mentoring as well. But what what are some of the things that you find most people need to learn initially? I don't know. That might be too vague of a question. But when you've done teaching, what are some common things that people often start out needing help with? I think people need help in being patient. <laughs> I think, you know, everybody wants to, wants the silver bullet and it just doesn't work that way. I mean, I could tell you what I do, but you're, and you're going to have to do that and a dozen other ways too, and find out what works. Now, do you, do you literally mean Bob Seger and his band? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope not. Um, but yeah, th- that's, that's the thing. Everybody wants to know, what do you do for mixing? What do you do for this? It's helpful to understand that. It was helpful for me to watch masters do what they do. You know, when I tried to do what they do, it didn't work out the same way. Um, and I remember one of the first times I worked in a great studio, I think it was actually Ocean Way A, I had everything available to me. And much of it, I had no idea what it sounded like. And it was a real difficult session because I was using gear that I, I didn't know the voice or character of that gear or that microphone. Uh, I thought, you know what, this is a lot more work. There's a lot of work to do to get to know these tools. I knew mm-hmm. what a 57 did and a 421 and maybe a 414, but I didn't know what an M49 sounded like. So yeah, I think uh, you know, just 
spending the time doing your own thing and learn. Don't be afraid to incorporate other people's tips and tricks, but ultimately it's got to be you know, your own distillation process. So um, how about some of the best advice you remember receiving when you were starting this out? Well, Richard Dodd told me, I remember wanting to help him or, and, or not help him. I, I wanted to uh, learn from Richard and, and I said, you know, can I work some sessions with you? He says, you can learn from me, but I can't teach you. Interesting. I, I, took, I, I took that to mean, and I think correctly that he's not going to stop his workflow to show me anything. And it was up to me to know how to learn in that situation and to glean what I needed to glean. And that was before YouTube and, and lynda.com and, and, and that sort of thing. And this sort of thing, you know, the imparting yeah. knowledge through interviews and stuff like that. It was just be there and be useful and learn, pick things up, take notes, take mental notes. So that was, I think, insightful. And, and for him, it's like, yeah, I don't have time to do this. If you're useful to me, you can be here. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the producers I really like to work with, we were discussing interns and what to do in the studio. And he he made a comment once he was just sort of like pointed out that like, you know, if you're interning on a session and you don't have something really helpful to contribute, then why are you here? You're just taking up space. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in a place that space is clearly limited. And obviously you just described a vocal session. Space is just non-existent. You're not even allowed to be in the control room. That's right. So get yourself some X-ray 3D glasses and learn through the walls. Well, in this chemistry, that's, I think, uh, an overlooked component, an element into the, in the recording situation is chemistry. I don't care who you are or who you're with. There's a, there's a chemistry part. And, you know, when I'm talking to interns or assistants, uh, I'd say you need to be chemically neutral. That mm. means verbally neutral and, and most often quiet. That means physically neutral. Um, I had an admin intern and she used to wear really, really heavy perfumes. And mm -hmm. I had to talk to her about that. Everything. It's the things that you just wouldn't normally think about. Yeah, but, it's true. You know, I've had, uh, you know, sometimes interns, it's tricky because you're asking them to do, do a lot of stuff, putting mics away and things, and they just got to be well showered. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Here's another silly, ridiculous little detail, but it's very true. When you're younger and you know you're interning and maybe you don't have a lot of money for um, usual stuff, maybe you're sort of shortchanging your laundry a little bit too. And that's an important thing. You know, you got to make sure that you're, uh, you're showing up at the studio in clean clothes every day and that you uh, make sure you pay, put enough quarters in the dryer so that, that you, they don't have that kind of mildewy smell to them. So there's, yeah. a, there's a geeky thing for me to say, but it's, it's true. Yeah. Point taken. Um, so how about uh, sharing with us a recording tip hack or secret sauce? I know you've done lots already, but throw another one at us. I'll throw a couple at you. Um, everybody loves compression and compression is one of the most kind of mystical. It's like, wow, compression can do so much. You know, I find when I get tracks that have been over compressed, it's largely due to maybe a low end frequency or a low frequency energy that triggers compression to happen before it would really be necessary. And so one of the hacks that we were sharing up at gear fest last week was inserting high pass filters before you compress and one of the i was telling you before off off uh, camera or whatever about people that want to shadow sessions and learn mix tips and stuff like that and you know one of the things that i do to to clear up a mix is to get rid of all the unwanted low end stuff and that's high pass filters are your best friends 
on, on a bunch of stuff. And especially if you're going to be compressing, filter out all that unwanted low frequency energy that could trigger a threshold and, and get gain reduction happening before it's necessary or just too much gain reduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and mess with the slope and the frequency so that you're not losing you know the the low tone that you need but you're eliminating anything from plosives to uh, microphone stand rumble to you know low frequency bleed all those things that can really muddy a mix especially because when you're mixing you're going to apply some amount of compression and limiting it's just going to bring that low frequency noise floor up too and that's how you end up fighting clarity in your mixes is all bringing up all this low frequency, really non-essential information. I know that ultimately we have to use our ears and make judgment calls based on how it sounds. But before you even listen, what are some numbers you would throw at somebody as suggested starting points for a low cut filter for some different instruments? Well, on a vocal, maybe on a male vocal, I might start at 50 or 60 uh, at a pretty steep slope, high pass filter. And then see how it affects the tone. Mm-hmm. See, see what you can make up in a low frequency uh, bump that's higher than your cut, your uh, knee frequency, um, and get the body back. But you can still cut out the the low stuff. Okay. Uh, you know, like electric guitars and bass. You know, there's there's a point at which the bass, you know, tapers off and the guitars pick up. You know, in that low mid frequency. So, you know, you just have to kind of play with that. That might depend on the key of the song and the tone of the bass and all that. Exactly, exactly. Um, you know, there's acoustic guitars, there's a lot of woof that comes out at 200, and that might be more of a notch uh, than it is a, a, you know, a high-pass filter. But sometimes, depending on what you want to do with acoustic guitars, I'd run that high-pass up past 120, 130, maybe up to 200 if you want a, a nice kind of you know, more articulation and string and pick thing than you do a body of the, you know, especially if it's like a double tracked acoustic guitar and you want to pan them out wide and have it be like the Tom Petty thing, you know, mm-hmm. Mike Campbell. Mm-hmm. Play with that because then you can compress a little bit more and you're not pulling up all that um, wolf and rumble that comes out. Same thing with a snare. If you're, if you kick and snare, you want to filter out a little bit of the kick drum so that it's not triggering the snare compression. Um, you know, snare gets some some real good, like I think of those deep Al Green snares, you know, from, yeah. from Royal Studios. It's like 180, 200. Maybe you can set your high pass somewhere around 80, take some of the kick drum bleed, yeah. there, you know, so you can, it's just playing with it. And would you typically, um, if you were sitting down to do something like that, if you don't hear the kick drum bleeding into the snare mic, does that mean you don't have to worry about it? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you just still trust your ears. If you're hearing something, then you filter it and you should be able to hear that difference. I guess if you're on small speakers, it can be harder to hear that difference. And maybe you can just set something down there as a safety. And I do, like I use uh, an automated high pass filter as well on vocals to, to um, deal with plosive. Oh, interesting. Right. So you're, you're, you're cut bringing it up and rolling off much higher um, yeah. when there's a letter P, when there's a P, a letter P. Yeah. P, yeah. P or B and so stuff like that. Yeah. So maybe it's fixed at 60. And then if there's a plosive, I'll automate the frequency to go up as high as maybe 200 mm-hmm. uh, to pull it out. What about background vocals? Do you find that a lot of times BVs can be rolled off much higher to not try and compete for that, the low end space that the lead vocal is sharing? Uh, as a general rule, sure, and always to taste and according to the song, some of the 
sometimes the background vocals may occupy a more prominent, maybe it's more of a duet or something. But yeah, if you have stacked vocals or a background vocal group. So the low frequency, a lot of times our ear interprets low frequency as uh, you know distance in terms of the sound stage, the depth. So the more low frequency content, the more we perceive it as being closer. The less low frequency, the more we perceive it as being back in the sound stage. So you can play with that too. It's um, like proximity equals closeness. Exactly. Well, let me say that differently. Proximity <laughs> equals proximity. <laughs> yeah, right. There you okay. Go. Okay. Cool. So now, how about sharing with us a, a favorite hardware tool for the studio? And let me let me sort of put this in perspective. Something physical that when you go to sessions, you're sort of always glad you've got it around. And it doesn't have to be, you know, the 1176 or something obvious. It could be anything at all. Um, well, I'll just make a shameless plug for these reflection filters I've been using that help out quite a bit. A reflection filter is this kind of U-shaped baffle that has a sound absorption material on the inside and you place it around the microphone and it does two things. It helps you isolate the microphone from bleed or and or it helps to um, kind of tune the space that you're in. So if you're in a really reflective room and you don't want that much reflection getting into the microphone, the reflection filter can knock down those reflections and help you control the acoustic space a little bit. Electric guitars kick drums. Um, you know, I've, a lot of times I use a piece of foam that I'll stick on a snare mic to try and block some of the hi-hat from coming into the snare mic. Cause mm-hmm. that's a very typical thing. Treating, trying to get top end and crack out of a snare, you're always going to pull in the hi-hat. So when I'm recording drums, if they, the drummer will accommodate it, I try and put a little bit of a foam barrier between the snare mic and where the hi-hat's coming from. Let me let me throw in a, a comment on that. I, I'm wondering if, like some other things in the studio, there, there are many times where you don't notice a problem when it's being created. You only notice it later on when you're mixing or mastering or you're really amplifying something or brightening something or really bringing the presence forward in the mix. Do you find that when you're doing things like putting the piece of foam on the uh, snare mic to block out the hi-hat. Do you ever sort of over-exaggerate what you might do with the snare so you can really hear what it's doing to block the hi-hat out? Or is it, you just sort of get the drum sound and then you just, if you're hearing a little too much hi-hat, you put it in there and it takes care of it? How do, how do you approach that? Well, I just kind of do it as a general rule as long as it's not adversely affecting the performance. And I know that's not going to hurt me. Um, so what you're talking about, exaggerating, uh, kind of looking downstream a little bit more and saying, let me apply a lot of compression in top end of the snare mic and see how much this will be a problem if I don't do this. Yeah, you can do that if you have the time to do it and decide whether or not you need it. The foam is pretty innocuous as long as it's not getting in the way of the sticks. Well, I guess rock stars, what I'm suggesting is that might be something for you to experiment with to understand or to better understand why you might want to black the hi-hat out from the snare mic. If you're not, ah. if it's not obvious to you now, maybe try cranking the compression up on the snare or brightening the snare a lot. And all of a sudden notice when you mute the snare mic, you're like, whoa, my hi-hat's coming and going from my entire mix. I didn't realize it was that much hi-hat in the snare drum mic. Right. Good point. Yeah. Okay, cool. So now what about a, um, and thanks for bearing with my extended explanation there, Neil. What, no. what about a favorite software tool in the studio? Something you really enjoy having around? Well, I love having, I love having the ability to bring up a big template of reverb and delay effects. And one of the things that I've been using a lot is this thermionic culture vulture plugin to, uh, to give tracks grit. 
um, vocals, B3, sometimes, you know, if a guitar is a little too tame and you don't want to really reamp it, that's a cool tool. I do a lot with sending kind of circular sends to delays and reverbs and sending uh, instruments to our vocals to a delay and then sending that delay pre-fader to a verb and kind of cross-pollinating the effects. That's always fun to me is creating different dimensions with delays and reverbs. And usually, you know, one of the things I like doing with verbs is taking a lot of top end off of the verb and having a very long tail automating the send or the return of that to just to give one or two phrases in a song just this long tail to it. it doesn't have to be applied you know statically it's just it's just something that happens once or twice and those are kind of the cool things that i always loved about records is that ear candy that you look forward to hearing every time you hear a song or something you talk about tattoo you they've got um in um start me up bob I think mixed that first snare hit just just kaboomed it right into a reverb before the song kicks off. Yeah, yeah. That kind of stuff is cool. That sort of thing, for sure. Now, when you're setting up effects on a mix session, is there, generally speaking, do you find that there are certain effects that are shared all across the instruments in the session? Do you find that, no, that's not the case. Usually I have these couple of effects that are really just for the drum zone and these couple effects that are only for the lead vocal and is there sort of an approach to it that that might help people understand how to how to navigate their effects a little better well yeah and that changes a little bit um you know i i do try and share effects as much as possible like you want to you want the effect to be an extension of the tone of the instrument and i audition a number of effects i pull up 20 tracks of effects just to find the right one you know, and just keep sending, you know, a guitar or a vocal through all these different effects and, and see which one feels right just kind of naturally and play with the presets and then modify stuff. And then I see how many other instruments can share that because what you're trying to do is kind of create a single picture that's glued together. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, you know, it depends on the instrument, you know, in, in acoustic music, especially you're going to find that a mandolin if won't respond to reverb or reverbs won't respond to mandolin. Uh, the same way they will to vocals. It's very specific, and you either end up EQing the send to a reverb or EQing the return uh, or sometimes compressing the return. Um, and I've, I use sends to these reverbs instead of doing a mono instantiation or a mono aux track where you instantiate a stereo reverb, which is means you get a mono in stereo out. Mm -hmm. I instantiate a stereo reverb on a stereo aux so that it accepts panning information too. I A lot of times on my reverb sends on instruments and stuff, I'll do um, send pan follows main pan. Uh, my send to like a 140 plate, the stereo, and if I have it panned off to the left, then the send is panned off to the left as well. And the reverb return responds to that. So it localizes the or positions the reverb return for that instrument too. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's okay if they're just all coming back in a in a wide stereo spread. Interesting. So it's the send going to the effect lets you choose whether it's pan to the left or pan to the right. Does an actual EMT one forty plate have stereo inputs and stereo outputs on it, or is it is it sort of the classic mono input and then stereo outputs? Um, I've seen versions of both. Uh, the one that's here has an actual—it's actually has a marker tech amplifier to it that has stereo in and out. 
but we have it set up as mono in stereo out right now. Fascinating. Cool stuff, man. Thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, how about a, a resource for the business side of doing it? You know, if you want to do this and make a career out of it, you got to figure out how to survive for the next however many decades. Um, got any tips, whether it's people, attitudes, or software or tools we need? Quicken is helpful. Keep track of your expenses just so you know real world what it costs, uh, where your money's going. There's nothing more helpful than looking. For me, I'm a numbers guy. I like looking at the numbers. And you can, you can get a really good picture of what you're doing by looking at what you've paid and what you've been paid. Um, and then what that sorts out to at the end of the year or the quarter or month or whatever. That's really helpful. And then just use, I would pay somebody to help you do your taxes at least a couple of times so you can see how to navigate that. Uh, it's hard being self-employed. You got to pay self-employment taxes. I would do it above the board, 100%. You don't want to get caught owing back taxes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, you just, you just want to sleep at night knowing that you're, <laughs> you're not going to be vulnerable somewhere down yeah. the line for something like that. But, um, and then admin rights on, if you're a creator, or you have authorship, or if you're doing production and there's royalties involved, um, the admin stuff is really cumbersome, but it's, it's worth getting your hands around, whether it's copywriting songs or registering with sound exchange or a performance rights organization, do all that stuff. And when time comes, hopefully you're seeing revenue from it. Um, but it also helps you in your dealings with clients. If you ever get into that, uh, not many people know that if you're registering stuff with sound exchange, musicians actually share a portion of the digital royalties from sound exchange. If you register it, right. If you do all the, the uh, data entry correctly. Interesting. So I think one of the things I grappled with understanding all that originally was this idea that you would really get into the admin because you were hoping for some sort of big win, you know, and then if you thought, oh, I don't, I'm going to really anticipate a big win, I'm not going to worry about it. But I think um, maybe you would agree with this and maybe other people would too, that really it's like that diligence to taking care of your admin is so that you like like growing a garden over so many years and decades, you carefully collect all the little stuff. And then one day you look back and you realize that you've completely survived as a result of collecting all the little things that come along. It could make a difference. Yeah, I mean, it could. I mean, I can see how people are easily daunted by that or just sometimes it's easy to say, nah, man, I'm just interested in the music. It's all good. I'm just putting it online anyways. Or, but I think it behooves you to set it up as if, something could come of it. And right. it's just another way that you you would be valuable to anybody else that's looking for that resource too. If you start doing production, then it'd be nice to have that that part of your game taken care of. Good stuff, man. Well, now um, here's a bit of a hypothetical question. Um, then we're just about, we're wrapping up here. But imagine you needed to start over again and you were in, moving to a new city like Nashville. Today, if you you know only had a couple few thousand dollars to spend or whatever, and you needed a, a setup to record with, you needed to find people to make music and record with, and you needed to uh, pay your bills in the meantime while you sort of launched your career, what would you do or what advice would you have some, to somebody who's starting out now and, and needs to just get going from the ground up? I would probably outfit myself with the limited resources with um, some kind of portable multi-channel recording situation that I could move around with, whether that's going to other people's spaces or maybe going to live venues 
you know, seeing shows. If I was younger and putting more energy into going out a lot, that's probably what I would do. You know, there's been some great success stories with um, people attaching themselves to artists for the love of the music that they make and then ended up working on projects together and that being the launching pad. So I'd probably, I'd probably put money into uh, a computer-based, a laptop-based multi-channel recording setup, you know, an interface, some affordable pre's, you know, Antelope Audio makes the 32-channel pre and like two-rack space that's really great. That's the Orion. So the Orion is the 32-channel interface and then they have a 32 MP, which is 32 mic pre's in a two-rack space. Nice. And they, it's kind of like their ecosystem. So, I mean, that you could go to a club, you can go to somebody's home studio or whatever. You know, find the things that are ubiquitous, that are versatile. One of the most versatile microphones is obviously the 57, the 421, the RE20, the Audio-Technica 4033. When that came out, I, I loved it. You could use it on everything. So those sort of purchases, and there's a, a million different flavors of that now, but those sort of purchases will go a long way towards, you know, accommodating many different scenarios. And what advice do you have for somebody who, who needs to make ends meet initially? Multitask, I guess, you know, have, you're, you're going to probably be in the position of supporting this career endeavor at first. So it'll be, it'll take a lot more than it'll give back. I think it's, it's got to be, mm-hmm. it's got to be tough today because schools are churning out in more and more uh, certified quote unquote, audio engineers. Um, and so it's a really dense field, uh, densely populated field. So I would say you're going to be supporting the endeavor for a little while anyways. And maybe if I would, I would support that with not to be old school, but just a job, hopefully maybe in a parallel field, maybe you're in video production or maybe you're working at a club or, but being there, so many people have said being there is half half the deal showing up. I always find that whatever job you choose, pick one that allows you to um, be available for a session at a moment's notice. Yeah. When I first moved here, uh, I didn't have a job. I think I worked for a courier service and I did landscaping and it was nothing, you know, I have a bachelor's in electrical engineering, but I didn't want to get a job at a company because I knew that it would eliminate the possibility of being available. You could have gone and, and worked at a console manufacturing, for example, like Harrison is right here in Nashville, right? Did you did right. you consider those options as well? No, nope. no, I didn't. All right, then. <laughs> Love it. All right, Groovy, man. Well, here comes the last doozy of a question, and I have to thank you at the outset so much, uh, and from all the rock stars for giving us so much time today. Really, man, sure, magnificent man. of you, and I owe you big time. I'll take you out. We'll, we'll go get some lunch soon, hopefully. Um, tell us, what is the single most important thing that our listeners can do to be a rock star of the recording studio themselves? Uh, I think it's be the right person. Um uh, hang in there. And like I said, there's a lot of people that can do what I do and do it better, but there's only one person that can be myself, you know? And so what, a lot of what you bring to a situation is who you are, personality, chemistry, your heart, your work ethic, your intention, all that stuff factors in. It's the intangibles that, that add to the picture at the end of the day. So I think that we harp on that a little bit, but I think it's an important, important thing. Absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I would say. 
Well, Groovy, Neil, thank you so much uh, for being here on the show with us on Recording Studio Rockstars. You are a rock star, and, and we love hearing all this advice that you shared with us and all these great insights and tips. Tell our listeners how they can find you, learn more about you. If they want to hire you for their next million-dollar recording project, how do they do that? Whatever you'd like to them to know as far as connecting with you. Uh, yeah, it's all available at neilcapolino.com. Um, I get emails through there. And uh, I answer them pretty regularly. So that's the best way. Okay, Groovy. And uh, Rockstars, N-E-A-L-C-A-P-P-E-L-L-I-N-O. Thank you again, man. Really appreciate it. Great. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. All right, man. Well, I look forward to seeing you around the studio and, uh, and I owe you big time. So thank you. I'll take you up on that. All right. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening to Recording Studio Rockstars. If you enjoyed the show and want to help make it better, please leave a rating and review on iTunes to help reach more people. You can click directly over to iTunes or go to recordingstudiorockstars.com slash review for an easy explanation. And if you want more free content, all you have to do is text RS Rockstars to 33444. Again, that's RS Rockstars to 33444, and I'll keep you in the loop with articles, videos, and podcast updates. And I'll let you know about any upcoming giveaway offers, all totally free. Thanks for listening. I'm Lid Shaw, and this is Recording Studio Rockstars. Now, go make great music. Music.